Welcome to the Walk in Truth weekend program. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people. Learn more about the program, podcast, Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona, and how to donate when you visit walkintruth.com. Now, here's Pastor Michael and part two of his teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 called The Cup of Blessing. Jesus' greatest temptation, in my view, was recoiling away from the reality of the cross and saying, no, I'm not going to do it. He was 100% human and 100% God. And he goes into the garden, and remember, he falls on his face. The disciples are sleeping. He's, like, really all alone. He always has his father, but everybody around him has basically fallen away, and then they will fall away. Father, if it's possible, let this cup Pass from me. Luke's account says that at that moment when he was praying, God dispatched an angel from heaven who strengthened him. And Jesus prayed it three times. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Imagine if Joseph would have given in in Egypt. Imagine if Jesus would have given in at the garden. What would be the ramifications of that? You wouldn't be here. If Jesus said, no, I'm not going the way of the cross. I'm not going to do it. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're dead. And Joseph, because he took a stand, he ended up in the prison, it's true, but then God used interpretation, and he ends up from the prison to the palace. And sometimes we don't want to take the, the, we want the shortcut instead of going the long way. Sometimes the long way is harder, amen? It's harder to fight my flesh. It's harder to resist the devil, and he will, what? Flee from you. That's, that's a struggle, But the reality is that God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to flee from idolatry. And I want you to think about the examples that came before this. If you were with us, we looked at Israel, specifically Israel in the wilderness. And Israel fell to a number of different sins. In fact, they're cataloged here. Just quickly, back to verse 6 of chapter 10. Now, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. 10.7. Do not be what? Idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Play is a sexual euphemism. Don't act immorally. Let us not act immorally. As some of them did, 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Ten. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, this is written to the church, brothers and sisters, take heed that he does not fall. Israel fell with the incredible Shekinah presence of God, the glory cloud there with them, the angel of the Lord there with them, watching miracle after miracle, having the manna provided for them and still Even though every day they had a miracle of the manna, they still fell. And that means that we can fall too. So we have to walk wisely. We have to, would you see in verse 14, Paul addresses the church as 
the dearly loved of God. You're my beloved. J. Vernon McGee, I think, made that fa famous in modern times. May God richly bless you, my beloved. But he stole that from Paul. And Paul took it from Jesus because Jesus loves his people. And so when Paul says, he gives the warning, it's in love. Would you notice? He says, my beloved. This is a loving thing to say. Flee, shun, run away from idolatry. This is the commentator, Stephen Um, and he says this better than I could ever say it. So I want you to hear this. He says, idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. Idolatry shows up in the subtle twist of ordinary desires and activities, eating, drinking, playing, marrying, and having sex. These activities and desires are often not ends in and of themselves, but are means to another end, personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control, etc. Whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we're committing idolatry. When we use food or substances or sex to fulfill or numb our deep desires, we're engaging in idolatry. Idolatry spoils life because we aren't able to enjoy things for what they actually are. Idolatry is in the air that we breathe, and it's rarely explicit. Most people don't know it's happening. They're not saying, I want this instead of Christ. They're saying, I want Christ plus this. To get at the idols of one's heart, one has to step back and consider the way one, one's desires shape his or her life. What drives us to work or not to work the way we do? What causes us to, to eat and drink or not to eat and drink the way we do? What desires lie behind the way we relate or don't relate to our spouse? What do we daydream about, fantasize about, long for? Do we often say, if only I had this? Or if only I were like this? What is our desire pointing at? What is our affection pulling us toward? What is our end goal? Answering these questions will help one to discover some of the layers of idolatry in one's own heart. Tragically, idolatry inevitably leads to living a double life. The Corinthians' deepest desire was to find a way to serve Christ and still remain acceptable in the public square. They wanted the benefits of the new creational order while st still participating in the old creational order. They did not want to stand out. They didn't want their faith in Christ to threaten their ordinary lives. They didn't want to participate in the shaping liturgy of the church while maintaining the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. Excuse me. They wanted to par participate in the liturgy of the church while maintaining the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. As a result, they ended up trapped between two different versions of themselves. They were leading double lives. Idolatry isn't a choice between two gods. It is the attempt to serve many gods at the same time. Idolatry is syncretism. Or put another way, idolatry is adultery. I remember some years ago, I was hearing a testimony from a man who was sharing at a pastor's conference. He was not a pastor. But he said, imagine that your wedding day comes and you went to the altar and the pastor began to walk you and your soon-to-be uh, spouse through the vows. And imagine 
He said, uh, you are to love and cherish and uh, you're to honor one another. And he started going through the traditional vows. And then you chimed in, well, could I only do that four days a week? Could I, could I be exclusive to this person uh, three and a half days a week, four days a week when I feel like it? How about when somebody else comes along that I find more attractive? How about when that person's not in a good mood and I don't like them anymore? Uh, can I qualify my vows? No, the truth is that you went to the altar and you said, I will love you in good days and bad days. I will love you through thick and thin. I will love you no matter which way the winds blow. I will love you when you're sick. I will love you when you have nothing to give to me. And you and I are in a new covenant relationship with the Lord. And he loves us and he wants us to love him. Imagine you wake up every morning and let's say that you had uh, a smorgasbord of gods and one day you said, you know, today I think I'll follow Buddha. And then you woke up on Tuesday and you said, you know, today I think I'm going to follow Zoroaster. And then you wake up the next day and you say, you see how ridiculous that is, right? You want to wake up every day and say, Lord, I belong to you. I am yours. And thank you that you are mine. I'm in a covenant with you. I want to love you through thick and thin. I don't want to just see the first dangling carrot from the enemy and go over there and, and justify it. I want to be exclusive to you and you to me. That's what Paul is saying. I want you to turn to the book of Acts. Paul is going through Athens, Greece, Acts 17. Just a little bit back in your Bible, Acts 17. And, and Paul, you know, he was Jewish, so obviously he was monotheistic, but he was persecuting the church, and he's en ended up in all these pagan cities. Not sure he ever would have been there had he not become a Christian. And Here's one example, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. The language there is that the city was in a forest of idols. They've done some research on ancient Athens, and they said the Agora, the street that leads into the main marketplace, was lined with 3,000 different altars. 3,000 different altars to different gods and goddesses, and one to an unknown god just in case they missed one. Right? Everywhere you look, there's this God and this goddess and that God. And this was in the main marketplace of Athens. And Paul goes up to Mars Hill and he says, what you worship in ignorance, and he starts with the unknown God, I'm going to explain to you. And then he begins to preach to them about the true God and how he doesn't dwell in temples with man-made hands. And then finally, Paul says to them, hey, it's time that you guys got it together. Being then 29 17 of uh, Acts, verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. That's really what an idol is. An idol is formed by man. It's man's idea exploited by the demonic, but it's really constructed by man. It's an image, end of 29, formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having looked the times 
overlook the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Do you feel equipped to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you find it difficult to defend your Christian faith? The Ministry of Walk in Truth and Pastor Michael Lance would like to give you a copy of his book, Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God. You know, the Christian life is a battle. It's not easy to stay on the straight and narrow, to walk the way we're supposed to in the midst of all kinds of temptations of our flesh, the world, the enemy. And so God has given us a provision. Here's the amazing thing. God has given us armor. And it is because he loves us and wants to protect us. Armor is for protection. We will send you a copy of Suit Up as a thank you when you send a financial gift of $5 or more to Walk in Truth. Walk in Truth is a listener-supported ministry, and we appreciate your help to broadcast and grow the ministry to more radio stations. Please give online at walkintruth.com or call 844-48-TRUTH. That's walkintruth.com. Click the Donate button or call 844-48-TRUTH. Make sure you subscribe to the Walk in Truth podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Everywhere you look, there's this God and this goddess and that God. And this was in the main marketplace of Athens. And Paul goes up to Mars Hill and he says, what you worship in ignorance, and he starts with the unknown God, I'm going to explain to you. And then he begins to preach to them about the true God and how he doesn't dwell in temples with man-made hands. And then finally, Paul says to them, hey, it's time that you guys got it together. Being then 29, 17 of uh, Acts, verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. That's really what an idol is. An idol is formed by man. It's man's idea exploited by the demonic, but it's really constructed by man. It's an image, end of 29, formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having looked the times Overlook the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And Paul's context is idolatry. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's cry to the Athenians is to repent from their idolatry and to trust in the one true and living God. And some people look at world missions and they look at the Christian church and they say, why do you bother people who have these other gods? They're sincere. Yeah, but they're sincerely wrong. Because what happens is if they trust in a false god, that false god is impotent to save them. That false god could be pragmatic. It could work for them for a season of life. But in the end, can that god save Can that God deliver on the day of wrath? That's what you want to know, don't you? Pragmatism is one thing. But I want to know that my worldview will actually survive when I die. As Chuck Swindoll put it, it's not whether you can live with your worldview. It's whether you can die with it. Because you're going to die. And if there is a heaven and a hell, if there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, then you better make sure you have the right God. 
And there are people all over the world, of course, worshiping a whole panoply of different deities. But that's not the issue. The issue is whether you got the right one, whether you got the one that can actually save you. Amen? That's what Paul's saying in Athens. And that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians. And once you have him, back to 1 Corinthians, why would you ever go back? Once you have the true and living God, 1 Corinthians 10, why would you turn back to dead idols? See, idols are a heart issue. And they can be subtle and tricky. For Israel, they struggled with the the Baals and the gods of Egypt and so forth, the gods of the surrounding nations. Ahab and Jezebel are a good example. In 1 Kings 16, 31 through 33, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal. That means Baal is alive, by the way king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made it the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. 1 Kings 16, 31 through 33. Later on, it came about when Ahab saw Elijah. Elijah means the Lord is God. And of course, the language is that uh, Jezebel's dad's mean, name means uh, Baal's alive, and Elijah comes to him, and it means the Lord is God. There's always these underpinnings in Scripture that are beautiful to look at. Ahab said to him, to Elijah, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. By the way, the top one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol, commandment two. And you have followed the Baals. Now, then send and gather to me all Israel on Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's have a little contest. And then Elijah says to the people of God, listen to this. This is 1 Kings 18, 21. He came near to the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer a word. Now, you know how the contest went for the prophets of Baal, right? God answered by fire. The prophets of Baal were on Mount Carmel, jumping up and down, cutting themselves. Oh, Baal, 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 I'm bleeding, Baal, I'm bleeding here for you. Show up, please. And Elijah's over in the corner going, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's reading the newspaper. And literally the Hebrew could allow for this. Maybe he's on the toilet. Sarcasm is biblical, apparently, right? Hey, I'm just giving you the Bible. All right, so, bail, bail, bail us out of this one. <laughs> Come on. Well, after they did that for quite a while, you know what happened, right? Elijah called out to God, and God did a miracle. And the prophets of Baal were no more. But Ahab and Jezebel weren't happy with Elijah, and we know, I think you know the rest of the story. It was hard. And so, Pastor Michael has done one verse, back to 1 Corinthians 10. (laughs) Verse 15 in the New Living Translation, 
You are reasonable people, 15 of chapter 10. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. Some people see this as irony, a touch of irony. Maybe Paul is being ironic and giving it to the people. Others see that this is just a, a blank tickets at, at, at the uh, surface level. I speak to, as to wise men, you judge what I say. I think you guys can figure it out, is what Paul is saying. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless, the word bless means to praise, it's eulogia in Greek. We do eulogies at funerals, and that means to speak well of somebody. So that's the word for blessing. Is the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing? Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing koinonia in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing koinonia is the Greek word in the body of Christ? Now Paul's going to swing from the argument about idolatry to using the example of the Lord's Supper to make his argument. Scholars would say, don't use this section per se as an in-depth teaching on communion. It's more illustrative. Paul's using the Lord's Supper to make his point about you can't live in both worlds. You can't, you can't be serving God and idols. And he goes to the communion table, and as the Lord would have it, today is what? Communion Sunday for us. And so I, I just love how the Holy Spirit works. So... He says, when we take the cup and we take the matzah or the bread, we bless it. It's the cup of blessing which we bless. Now, the blessings go both ways, right? We can bless the cup. We can bless the bread in, in the, those times. And if you look at like uh, examples of the uh, Seder meal, they would say a blessing to God who supplies the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, uh, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So they would say a blessing. And the blessing, of course, goes both ways. You're listening to Walk in Truth. This was part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 called The Cup of Blessing. Remember to visit our website, walkintruth.com. It's kind of our communication tool for you to learn more about our ministry. Listen to programs you might have missed, get resources to help you in your Bible study, give a donation, and contact us with questions and prayer requests. Again, the website is walkintruth.com. Now here's Pastor Michael. You know, one of the big takeaways from this section of 1 Corinthians is that we don't want to live a double life. I don't want to be a double-souled, two-faced person. I want... Not to bless my Lord and then be drinking the cup of demons. I don't want to sit on the proverbial picket fence and play both sides because all it does is breed inconsistency and instability in me and others around me. I want to raise that cup of blessing, bless the Lord with it, and pour out blessings in other people's lives. That's really what this is all about. You know, when you become more effective and you're not falling to temptation— you become a blessing to others. You become a vessel fit for the master's use. Oh God, help us. Help us all in that endeavor. Hey, well, I invite you to listen on Monday where we'll have a conversation with Greg Kolkel. We've been talking about this special Sunday night 633 event on January the 26th. The topic is tactics. It's a game plan for discussing 
your Christian convictions. We've all been in those conversations where, you know, a coworker, a friend brings up a tough topic or says, Hey, I heard this the other day. How do we deal with that? How do we steer a conversation in the right way so that we can get to the gospel, get to the Christian worldview, which is rational and the evidence is on our side, folks? Well, you can come on out to 633 with Greg Kokel and you can get all the info you need to be more equipped with your Christian worldview. 633, Greg Kokel, Sunday night, the 26th. Download the Living Truth app in your app store and you can find out all about it and do it today. God bless you. Hey, so excited that you are listening to Walk in Truth here on this great station. And we would love to invite you out to our Sunday services today at Living Truth in Corona, where I serve as senior pastor. It's a great church. We have great worship, great church family, and we're going through the incredible book of Galatians. I would love for you to be part of one of our services. If you're planning on not going to church, if it's been a while, if maybe you're looking for a church that teaches the truth of Scripture verse by verse, or maybe you just want to come on out and visit, take a Sunday off of your normal uh, things that you do, and come on out to Living Truth, 9 and 11, 15 a.m. this morning. We have children's programs, a great youth group at second service. We have a Sunday night young adult group. You can find out all the information and directions when you download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app in your app store. Look for the red logo with the pillars, and I'll see you at one of the services today. God bless you. Tune in Monday for our special program as Pastor Michael will have a conversation with apologist and radio host Greg Kokel about tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. I'm Mike Massaro. Hey, thanks for listening to Walking Truth. And as always, our goal is equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people.